The following content is explicit. It's Friday, July 13th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A study came out, really not a study, more of an algorithm-based data correlation. And what they did was they looked at consumer purchases and they found that what you bought could help identify your ideology and even your race. Here, let me read from the Washington Post. University of Chicago Booth School of Business economists Marianne Bertrand and Amir Kamenica taught machines to guess a person's income, political ideology, race, education, and gender based on either their media habits, their consumer behavior, or their social and political beliefs. Now, first of all, I like this researcher, Amir Kamenica, and I like it because his name is an anagram of Mike American, and I strongly identify with that. But the ideas are interesting too. So what you do is you have, they they have all this household data. And if they know some of the things that you're buying or not buying, they have taught a computer to correctly identify what race a person is. And the notable thing is they've been doing this or they have the data for years and it's getting easier and easier to correctly guess. And it's not even guessing, to correctly predict a person's race. So Dockers used to be kind of Republican pants. Now they're really Republican pants. Ranch dressing is quite the Republican dressing. 20 years ago, told me someone ate ranch dressing, I'd say, maybe a Republican. Now I'd say, oh yeah, that guy's a Republican. But the race stuff fascinates me the most because I think I have found a great use for the information. So the data suggests that there are some products, some types of products that correlate to whiteness. And here's some of the fascinating ones. You ready? Owns a flashlight. Very good predictor of being a white person. Owns a dishwasher. Perhaps that's not fascinating. This is more a correlation to home ownership, but owns a shovel. You know those white people, what with their shovels and all. Now here is my idea of how to use this, how this can really change everything in one very important field. And that field is comedy, stand-up comedy. It has long been a standard trope of comedy that people of differing ethnicities navigate the world in different ways. They say it funnier than that. But the specific examples cited are old or obvious or cliched or just out of date. So what I've done is I've scoured some stand-up routines of comics and I've helped them out by inserting scientifically proven rather than just assumed household products to use as examples. Let's start with this one. Uh, I'm going to let the white people know something real quick about uh, minorities we love. Not owning a flashlight. I saw arguably the whitest thing I ever saw in my life. Vlasic pickles. I saw a white guy in the airport. With a shovel. (laughs) Black people don't mess with. Stovetop stuffing. It's funny because it's a stereotype backed by data. On the show today, I spiel about more consumer products, namely cereal, and how cereal explains democratic strategy, but doesn't really explain itself. But first, a couple of pardons were in the news. Ranchers who purposefully set federal lands ablaze a couple days ago, Trump pardoned them. We talked to the original prosecutor who fills in some details on just what it was that these ranchers did.
Father and son cattlemen from Oregon, Dwight and Steve Hammonds, were pardoned by Donald Trump this week. You may recall that their five-year sentence for burning federal lands to cover up illegal killing of deer touched off a weeks-long standoff when militia members aligned with Cliven Bundy took over a U.S. wildlife refuge, and that resulted in a death and some jail sentences. So again, these were the cattlemen whose original sentencing touched off that standoff. These, they weren't part of the standoff, but Donald Trump came in and did pardon them. And in the wake of that, there's been some, frankly, misreporting about the facts of the case. So let's go to a primary source. Anne-Marie Scarlatta was assistant U.S. attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice. She was one of the prosecutors of the case. She's now in private practice in Georgia. Hello, Anne-Marie. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Good. Could you tell me how the case came to you in your office? So the case, all cases come to the U.S. Attorney's Office by being presented by a law enforcement agency, usually a federal one. And in this particular case, a Bureau of Land Management federal law enforcement agent brought the case to the U.S. Attorney's Office for prosecution based on a history of uh, both what's called fire trespasses and suspected intentional settings of fire, which, depending on the circumstances, is also known as arson occurring in a particular area of Oregon and continually linked to to the same particular family. And because those fires came very close to many of the firefighters and put them at risk of danger to the point where they were racing away from the fire and could feel hot flames and fire on their face, because of that factual scenario, the BLM agent finally brought it to the U.S. Attorney's Office and said, we've been having problems with them for decades, frankly. Mm -hmm. Would you please do something about it at this point? And that was in 2006 that those fires took place? Correct. So the the trial was in 2012, right? Correct, yes. it, it, It took six years to take it to trial? Yes. Was there gray area in terms of prosecution? Was there discussion? Is this the sort of thing that we are here to prosecute? You know, what was the decision making in your office, which may have taken place above you? I don't know, but certainly was communicated to you. Generally, it can be very hard to improve the intent for arson, but also for the most part, people don't on purpose just set fires to large swaths of of federal lands. So, While the U.S. Attorney's Office has probably declined thousands more arson cases from federal lands than it's actually prosecuted, this one, at the point where firefighters felt like they were in danger for their life, not on account of the fire they were fighting, but on account of private landowners contiguous to the fire they were fighting, that's where it rose to the threshold for the U.S. Attorney's Office that this is something that we have to deal with. Right. So this was a large fire. This was a dangerous fire. But as you said, it's hard to prove intent. So how did you do that at trial? Well, we have the benefit of many statements that witnesses testified Stephen Hammond and or Dwight Hammond had made over the years regarding fires on BLM land. So there was testimony at trial that in 1999, that Stephen Hammond uh, set a fire on his own land that escaped onto the federal lands contiguous with his property. I believe Hammond Ranches owned about 13,000 acres, and they were using 26,000 of BLM's acres to graze their cattle. So in 2003, Stephen um, Hammond told the BLM, according to testimony of witnesses at trial, that he'd started fires all over the area and you guys have never caught me. So you Those put witnesses the- on the stand and they told you things that Stephen, incriminating things that Stephen Hammond said. 
Correct. Um, including in 2006, during a Steens Mountain Advisory Council meeting, Stephen Hammond, according to a witness who testified at trial, said, why go through the trouble of coordinating prescribed burns with public lands agencies uh, when a match in the month of August would accomplish the same thing? Huh. Um, and then in 2001, another of the fires that, that he was convicted of in this case, there was testimony at trial that he gave a 13-year-old a box of matches and told him to light the whole country on fire. And, and this, was, this was a cousin of his? This was a relative yeah. of his, yeah. But Stephen apparently gave him a box of matches and told him to start lighting the country on fire. Thirteen-year-old uh -huh. did. He ended up having to shelter in a creek because fire walls of fire started going up around him. He said testified eight to ten feet tall, and he thought that he was actually going to die. He was able to escape by sheltering in the creek. That was his testimony at trial, that he was uh, specifically directed to do this and that this was something that his understanding was. It, it was not the first time that uh, Stephen Hammond had been involved in something of this nature. Right. So they pled guilty basically to what they were going to be found guilty of. And they knew the sentence was five years. But what happened at sentencing? The sentence, uh, as you said, and the law says, it's a mandatory minimum of five years. So take me through why, uh, why it wasn't for a time. Right. So uh, the sentencing hearing happened on the day before the, the trial judge, who was also the initial sentencing judge, was about to retire after oh. pretty sure it was over 30 years on the bench for Judge Hogan. Uh, he had a very distinguished career. And he had noted at trial a few times that, you know, he grew up with cows. He was familiar with the outdoors. He was familiar with Oregon being very rural. He was familiar with the life of ranchers or what have you. And he, he made comments to that effect um, a little bit here and there, just sort of to break the ice with the parties and what have you. But then mm -hmm. ultimately, when the sentencing happened, he decided that he was not going to impose the mandatory minimum. He made an Eighth Amendment analysis, finding that it would essentially constitute cruel and unusual punishment because it would be so disproportionate to the actual conduct mm -hmm. that it would be unconstitutionally unfair. And he sentenced initially Dwight to, I believe it was three months, and Stephen to maybe a year and a day. Yeah something along those lines significantly below. I'm just a simple caveman and not a lawyer, but I thought mandatory minimum meant mandatory. <laughs> Is there any leeway to ignore a mandatory minimum? Not under these circumstances. In uh -huh. a drug case for a first-time offender, mm -hmm. there's what's called a safety valve, where if the prosecutor files a motion saying, you know, this person has no priors and they were not the kingpin or what have you, then the judge can sentence them below the mandatory right, minimum. Right, but that's in the law. That's written into the law. Correct. This seemed like a judge Correct. freelancing. Correct. Were you still with the government when the, when the federal government's appeal was upheld and they were uh, sentenced to the mandatory minimum? Yes, I was. And what was your reaction then? Well, I wasn't surprised. Um, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the West Coast is not known to be the most government-friendly circuit. Right. And they had no problem reversing that sentence. Um, they wrote an 11-page opinion, very thoughtful. They went through the entire analysis. But on all fours, there was no question about it. It was an illegal sentence, and judges do not have discretion to ignore mandatory minimums, period. So what's your uh, either intellectual or emotional reaction that these two guys are free? They served years in jail, right? They served prison. 
They served, I think, um, around three years for the father and four years for the son. Uh, how do you, what do you think of it? I was a little bit surprised when it happened. Not not terribly surprised, but I became more surprised when I saw that they, according to some news reports, apparently they're only the sixth and seventh people he's pardoned. So the fact that they were that high up on his list of worthy people, you know, uh, deserving to be uh, pardoned and let out of prison, what that was surprising to me. Yeah. Joe Arpaio being one. Uh, yes, a, yeah. a long list. Jack Johnson, there, he was a part yes. of it. Didn't really help him. He's dead. Right. My hope is that they're not emboldened to continue the conduct of lighting fires in, around, near firefighters, you know, feeling that they can get away with anything now because they're in the public limelight. And President Trump, of all people, the chief executive officer of the United States, has pardoned them for the same conduct. Even though they had no role in setting off the takeover of the wildlife refuge that resulted in a death and, 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 and long trials and eventually actually, um, in many cases, um, not guilty verdicts, does the connection to that uh, give you pause or make you wonder or worry about what this pardon is saying? Yes, the connection to that definitely does. And the proximity of those events time-wise also concerns me because I think it might fuel a movement, so an anti-government movement of lawlessness on federal lands or lawlessness in general, but certainly on federal lands. And knowing that Oregon, all of the West, frankly, the Western part of the United States has large swaths of federal lands. And so, you know, there's a live active fight right now between people who believe that those lands should belong to them personally, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to the, the people of the United States as a whole. And those folks are willing to grab their guns and do what they need to do. And that is concerning. Yeah. And this pardon does at least seem to weigh in in a very different manner than the federal government has traditionally weighed in on that question. Uh, last question to you. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about the case, your experience with it, a correction of a narrative that's taken hold around the pardons, anything else? Yeah, I have taken issue with some of the things that I've seen in headlines and press coverage um, of the pardon. For example, I saw a Wall Street Journal, I think it was by the editorial board, put out a piece saying a worthy pardon for the Hammonds, where their facts didn't match up with the evidence that was presented at trial and, frankly, didn't match up with the jury's verdicts, in my opinion. For example, they said in 2011, the federal government charged two Oregon ranchers with arson and destruction of federal property for having done nothing more than utilize the same fire management tools that the government routinely employs. That's false. <laughs> Third, you, That's you mean the government doesn't use false. 13-year-old boys with no, uh, strike not. anywhere matches and tell them to hide it, in a creek? <laughs> no, it sure doesn't. It doesn't do that. It doesn't light fires in or around firefighters. And mm -hmm. what, what people need to understand is this. The BLM's job is to balance the interests of multiple stakeholders in federal lands. Those stakeholders include hunters, campers, bird watchers, biologists, everyday people. All of those people have a right to access all of the federal lands, including ones where Hammonds would like their, their cows to graze. And when the federal government is deciding whether to do a prescribed burn on federal lands, it has to balance all of those interests and it has to do a NEPA environmental assessment in order to balance all of those interests because Congress decided that all of these stakeholders have an interest in federal lands. And so the BLM 
is put in a position where they're trying to satisfy, you know, several different stakeholders, that's impossible because they have adverse interests. The private landowners want a certain thing. The biologists, the environmentalists want something else. And so they do everything very carefully and it can be bureaucratic and it can take longer than people might like. But the reason for it is because they have to listen to everyone, hear them out, give them an opportunity to be heard and then make a decision on how to proceed. The Hammonds wanted to circumvent that process and put it all within their own control. And they were willing to do it by force, including force that severely endangered the lives and safety of multiple people. There were witnesses at trial who testified who were hunting when fires came pummeling toward them. There were the 13-year-old himself who had to shelter in a creek. The firefighters who testified at trial that they were their lives and safety were threatened by these fires all of these folks are stakeholders and had an interest in being where they were at that time. And they were put in danger because the Hammonds apparently acted as if their private land-owning interests have supremacy over the interests of everybody else. Anne-Marie Scarlotta is an attorney in private practice as an assistant U.S. attorney. She was one of the prosecutors of Dwight and Stephen Hammonds, who have just been pardoned by Donald Trump. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And now, the spiel. Today, we bring you cereal. No, no. Not that kind of cereal, this kind of cereal. A coast-to-coast salmonella outbreak has been linked to breakfast cereal, and Kellogg's is now recalling packages of Honey Smacks. 73 people in 31 states have gotten sick. 24 have been treated in hospitals. CBS reporting, as we are hearing, and they yielded what I thought was an interesting tidbit. With a median age of 58. Median age of 58 for Honey Smacks, the cereal with the cartoon frog, half of Honey Smack eaters were over 58. Okay, okay, I understand what's going on. Younger, more hardy people were better able to fight off the effects of salmonella. Still, we're talking about adults and a cartoon frog. I mean, I'm a big Cinnamon Toast Crunch fan, but at least they have humans on the cover. Now, I understand Honey Smacks to some degree. I mean, I understand they exist, but there's a lot about Honey Smacks I don't understand. First of all, they're called Smacks. Not familiar with other kinds of Smacks. Not since Frosted China White has a food product so evoked heroin. Now, I know about the Honey Smacks. I know how breakfast cereal works. Here's how they work. They invent a grain, and that becomes a cereal. And then they coat the grain with sugar, assign it a spokes creature, and they give that to kids. You got cornflakes? They come up with Frosted Flakes. You got your shredded wheat? You got your Frosted Mini Wheat. You got your puffed wheat cereal? And then you get your sugar wheats, but you can't call them sugar wheats. You got to call them sugar smacks. And that's what they did call this cereal in the 80s. Let's have some sugar smacks. Smacks, smacks, sugar smacks. I dig them. Give me a snack and I'll smack you back. But then sugary cereal got so unpopular, they had to rebrand it honey smacks. And yes, I checked. It does have honey, trace amounts of honey but heaps of sugar. In fact, according to the Environmental Working Group, Kellogg's Honey Smacks is the most sugared cereal. 55.6% of it is sugar. 
In fact, they say one cup of Honey Smacks has more sugar than a Hostess Twinkie. So I get it. I get it. You got to put the sugar on the plain grain cereal to sweeten it up. And if you got puffed wheat, which is so excessively plain, you've got to put an excessive amount of sugar on that. But why the frog? You heard him in the commercial calling himself Diggum. Here's another commercial where the kids call out his name. Dad, Diggum! Smack, smack, sugar smacks. Give me a smack, and I'll smack you back. Okay, so I get that they're called smacks, and the frog's smacking you five. But why is a frog giving you a high five? Frogs aren't known for high-fiving. Why is he named Diggum? Frogs don't dig. There are plenty of animals that dig. I know the idea is that you're going to dig the smacks, daddy-o. This really is turning into a night of jazz at the Village Vanguard circa 1961. But if you name an animal Diggum, you have so many burrowing creatures to choose from. You got your gophers, you got your prairie dogs. I'm not going to suggest a mole cereal. Plenty of cute digging animals. And then you got the smacks. Why not pick an animal that high fives, which isn't a frog? So you're saying one animal high fives. We'll listen to this commercial from the 1950s. Hey, here comes Smacksy the seal smacks his flippers. Now that I get. I think they need to take the lesson of Smacksy and go back to their aquatic roots. Not a seal, but a salmon. Ella, the sugar smacks salmon. Salmon Ella. But you know, that's not all for cereal news because we got Lucky Charms making headlines. Sales of the sweet cereal jumped 20% this year, making it General Mills' fastest growing line. Now, why are sales spiking? General Mills cites this factor. Lucky Charms now has a new unicorn marshmallow. Part of this complete breakfast. Yes, after adding unicorn, sales are up 20%, according to the New York Post, which actually may be true, even though it was in the Post. And it got me to thinking about Democratic Party politics. Of course it did. See, the Democratic Party is just like breakfast cereal because with both, the overall numbers are down. And the narrative around each is even worse than the actual numbers. Also, with each, millennials are said to be rather uninterested. So some in the Democratic Party say, we need a new message. What we need is new branding. But they say that, but they don't really want new branding. They just want people to hear the old branding and believe it more. What this is, this is cutting a commercial, a new commercial with Lucky the Leprechaun doing something au courant, like windsurfing or rock climbing. But he still goes in for the pink hearts, yellow moons, green clovers, all that. The next step, one step up from that, claiming you want a new platform but just doing the same old thing, maybe with uh, slight variations, is you, you do think you really need to mix things up. You need to take the established platform and add some new items. And that is the adding a unicorn step. Is it so different? It's not so different. It's not so fundamentally different as to really change things. But, you know, a new unicorn can boost sales a little. The Democratic Party equivalent, I'd say, something like endorsing the fight for 15, a $15 minimum wage. A new issue that's a little different and a little specific, but it also totally dovetails with the established image. And then there's another step. You could go for a whole new mascot. Out with Smacksy the Seal, in with Diggum. We like what we're saying, but we're going to put a fresher face on it. Enter Barack Obama. That guy's still a Democrat through and through, but he's definitely a different, newer face on the box. 
Now, more radically, if you want to go a further step than that, if you think you got real big problems with your product, you go in for a Bernie Sanders or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, their prescription is that no one's buying that kind of cereal anymore. So what they're saying is that Lucky Charms are getting old. We're going to offer Musily, which is actually older but seems newer. They say, look, it's still cereal. We're not getting out of the cereal business. But, you know, this is a healthier cereal. And people in surveys say they want that. And Europeans like it. Now, the brand manager for Lucky Charms, which say the Democratic Party establishment, a little skeptical. They're saying, yeah, that's not really what Lucky Charms is all about. Also... We suspect people might say differently, but they don't really want Musili. Then let's look to the Republicans. What are Republicans doing during all this? Republicans are basically saying, you know who we are? We're bacon and eggs. 50 years ago when the parties were closer in alignment, they were also a type of cereal, but they moved away. They're now a totally different kind of breakfast. And the Tea Party and Trumpism and the alt-right, what's their message? Their message is skip breakfast. Breakfast was a lie all along. You're better without it. You're more self-sufficient. And a shocking number of people are listening to them. And they're now skipping breakfast. And they're also gleefully smacking the breakfast off the plates of their neighbors. And somewhere, there's Nancy Pelosi. And she's surveying all of this. And she's saying, well, unicorns kind of a radical step. Why don't we just take the pink hearts or the yellow moons and kind of tear them a little bit? And if people want to think those are unicorns, well, we won't issue a denial. I'll tell you what. Much like a certain sweetened puffed wheat breakfast, this whole thing smacks of desperation. And that's it for today's show. As always, thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not a member yet, learn more at slate.com slash gist plus. It'll cost you 35 bucks, but you'll get ad-free versions of this and other Slate podcasts and bonus content. The gist was produced by Pierre BNMA, who drives like this, whereas other gist producer Daniel Schrader drives like this. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, said that when Kellogg's retired Tusk the Elephant as spokes creature for Cocoa Krispies and went with that monkey, he was out. The gist shall now rank the three coolest dudes of the 20th century. Number three, Miles Davis. Number two, Winston Churchill. Number one. Super Sugar Bear. Boom, Peru, Da, Peru, Du, Peru, and thanks for listening. Oh, by the way, Twinkie cereal, that's not a bad idea.